I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Rishi Sunak caught in video celebrating the defunding of deprived areas. Ryiwa Oki wins the RIBA presidential election. Children of social housing tenants banned from playing in a new Thameside development. And could the new transport bill be waging an unfair war on cyclists? My name's Merlin Fulcher. I'm an architectural journalist, and I'll be bringing you a roundup of this week's top London architecture news. Welcome to The Lundown. My guest this week here at Bureau in Design District is Joris Lachene. Joris is a TikTok star and a diversity and inclusion trainer. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. A video of prime ministerial candidate Rishi Sunak boasting about diverting funding away from, quote, deprived urban areas surfaced this week, creating a storm of condemnation on social media. The clip, which was obtained by the New Statesman, shows Sunak admitting to Conservative members of the affluent Tunbridge Wells constituency that he redirected funds towards already prosperous areas at the expense of underprivileged parts of the country. I managed to start changing the funding formulas to make sure that areas like this are getting the funding that they deserve. Because we inherited a bunch of formulas from the Labour Party that shoved all the funding into deprived urban areas. Uh, and they, you know, that needed to be undone. I started the work of undoing that. Sunak was speaking in Royal Tunbridge Wells, a commuter town in the southeast of England, which has been held by the Conservatives since the constituency was formed in 1974 and currently has a Conservative majority of 14,645. Many Conservatives have rushed to the former Chancellor for the Exchequer's defence. Former Minister Andrew Mitchell said his comments were, quote, misunderstood and that Sunak was actually talking about the Red Wall. Meanwhile, shadow levelling up Secretary Lisa Nandy said, it's scandalous that Rishi Sunak is openly boasted that he fixed the rules to funnel taxpayers' money to prosperous Tory shires. This is public money. It should be distributed fairly and spent where it's most needed, not used as a bribe to Tory members. So, Joris, anyone who's familiar with your amazing TikTok output will know that you're a big champion of high-quality social housing in London and beyond, Um, but you're also someone who works hard to boost diversity and inclusion in our cities. Um, So you clearly spend a lot of time visiting and investigating the plight of deprived urban areas. Um, From your experience, what sort of help do these areas really need, and why is taking money away from them so deplorable? Well, the reason why they are deprived in the first place is because there hasn't been enough money or money has been taken away from it already. Um, So 
what they would need, aside from money, because yes, they would need money, but there's this entire ideology that if they are poor, it's because they don't know what to do with the money. Therefore, let's come up with even more um, enforcing decisions that are completely disconnected from them. Even the decisions that are with, with good intentions, it still ends up being a decision that is taken by people who do not experience it, who do not live there, and who t- start from the assumption that people who live there and who experience their everyday life do not know what is good for them. So what they need, aside from money, is listen to them. They need a voice. They need to be respected. They need to be affirmed because very often people who live in a place, they know what they want. They know what would be better. They know what to do to make it a better place. Um, And very often we find that the solution that is offered by, by the authority is either bring it all down and let's build uh, something new that is very usually uh, going to be for a different demographic, unfortunately, or redo, re-refurbish, but in a way where where people are not really being consulted. Um, And even when they are consulted, there's always this this feeling that they're not being trusted to know what is good for their their estate, their neighbourhood, and that is part of the oppression, really. Aside from the lack of funding, there's also the narrative that they don't they they are being infantilized i think uh, it's really interesting what you're saying there especially about representation in the decision making because if if i look at like parliament in britain um i see a lot of people who are homeowners you know i see a lot of people who've also been who perpetuate and benefit from a system which gives rewards to homeowners and puts up their property price gives them subsidies to buy more homes even through their expenses used to be used to buy homes um, and I look at this, this Rishi Sunak meeting as well, and I think, well, I think probably a lot of those people there are not social housing tenants, you know, that he's speaking to. Do you think, would it make a difference if, if Parliament had more people who, who live in social housing or at least grew up in social housing and, and were benefiting from it rather than just desperately trying to make a property empire for themselves? Definitely, yes. It would absolutely help to have more diversity. Um, we see an interesting... Um, way in which diversity is being weaponized against um, against the more marginalized people. Because here we have in Rishi Sunak, for instance, the, the, the racial and ethnic diversity that is uh, being championed and presented to us as, as diversity and progress. But if you look at his interest, his class interest, we realize that just like the rest of, just like most of parliament, there is no social diversity. There might be some ethnic or racial diversity, but those people who are put to the forefront, they still belong to the same class, the same elite, whose interests side mostly with with privileged people in this country. So this is a good example of that, um, that very often when we talk about diversity, it is used to hide uh, another lack of diversity. Britain is built on, on class divide, which manifests itself into racism because very often when when I try to highlight the class segregation of this country, it is taken as me denying the impact and existence of racism. But that's not the case. Racism in the UK is um, just an expression of classism. But both are very, very present in this country. And and obviously what's interesting is that in, in many ways, university used to play this role of transcending the class system. Um, and helping people have, you could call it social mobility. Um, 
Now, Sunak's also caused a big storm this week by outlining a huge shake-up of the education system, uh, one that, according to the Prime Ministerial hopeful, will see the phasing out of university degrees that do not increase students' earning potential. Um, so, Joris, what do you make of this? What might be the impact of removing degrees with more modest earning potential from the system? And could we end up seeing like fewer architects, artists, activists? Could we, could we end up seeing fewer TikTok stars, uh, you know, if degrees like this didn't exist? Well, I'm actually a perfect example of what happens when you give money to people and when you remove the pressure of having to be productive because during the pandemic... I suddenly had loads of time, free time on my hand, and, and that allowed me to become creative and to then contribute in a way that I was not allowed to before. And, and this suggestion um, from Rishi Sunak, is, it just reinforces the, the university-to-workplace pipeline without giving an opportunity to people to try to be creative or to create their own work, their own job, their own, um, their own contribution to society. Um, that this idea that university is a place where you learn to become a good employee as opposed to you learn to become a citizen or you learn to become someone who's going to be challenging or creating the society of tomorrow, that is part of the conservative ideology as well. So that's a perfect example of that maintaining us from the youngest age as possible into this productivity pipeline. And like what you're saying, that ability to stand outside the system and to be creative, if it is the case that university degrees which allow that are then locked down and phased out, does that just mean that only even more privileged people get to be artists or visionaries or you know, bring about society in the world? Absolutely, yes. Um, as, as, as a trainer on decoloniality, I work with British universities and the issues that they have is that they see a gap in outcome uh, depending on, on your privilege, your, your social status, your race, your ethnicity. People uh, from minorities are less successful at universities. And this is the concern. This is the gap that they're trying to, to close. Um, precisely because university is not enough of an inclusive space where where people from minorities get a chance to participate into society and that's that's the direction that most universities are trying to take and and we see with the proposal from Rishi Sunak that this is the least of his concerns because he wants to make university a place to produce workers and workers who are going to be docile that means as you said that only those who are already privileged will be able to escape that pipeline and will be able to contribute to society, which, was, which is the plan from the get-go. They, they won't say openly, but that's the plan, that the only people who get to think and design and organize our society are the ones who are already really privileged. Muyiwa Oki, an outsider candidate put forward to represent the grassroots of architectural workers, has been elected as the next president of the Royal Institute of British Architects, that's the RIBA. In an election widely reported by the AJ and other built environment publications, Oki saw off opposition from Sumita Singer, who also stood for the post two years ago, and Eliza Morrison's Joe Bacon in the race to succeed the current president, Simon Alford. Oki, who works as an architect at the construction consultancy MACE, 
will begin his two-year term on the 1st of September 23. Aged just 31, he will be the youngest ever RIBA president since the role was established in 1835. Riiwa was put forward as a potential candidate in May after being chosen by a coalition of the campaign group Future Architects Front, the trade union United Voices of the World, and former members of the RIBA Council who were keen to shake up the institute and move it beyond, quote, empty slogans and self-serving initiatives. He said he was grateful to the, quote, grassroots movement whose support and passion offered a platform to represent architectural workers. He went on, quote, most of all, a special thanks to those members and nominations that responded to this movement, tuned in and voted, especially those that did so for the first time. We can be proud of an election where people of colour at different stages of their careers of all identities can be heard and seen bidding to represent the profession. Elsie Awusu, a former RIBA presidential candidate, said, quote, As Muyiwa steps into the presidency in 2023, I look forward to more equity and inclusion at all levels in our profession, as well as his inspirational leadership in architecture and urban design. So, Sean Adams, the architectural designer, co-founder of Poor Collective and a former guest of London, uh, tweeted in response to the election win, quote, with all the talk about diversity, inclusion and change, I hope we will now see genuine change and no more lip service. Oki's appointment has the power to inspire people of colour across the industry and aid the representation the profession so badly needs. So Joris, um, could this be a turning point for the industry which has struggled to accommodate diversity so far? It could be. The answer is yes, it could be. That doesn't mean it's guaranteed um, because representation is a lot, but it's not everything. So it's great to have to have a person of color leading something that represents a very old institution, which we would associate with maintaining the status quo. That's what it's been successfully doing for a very long time. So hopefully that is that is going to be shaken, not simply by the fact that that this is a person of color, but because it was chosen by by people who advocate for architecture workers uh, and for their rights as well. So try to give a voice to people who generally do not have a voice in that industry. So that is that is a good thing. Now, will he actually have the power to go against um, the other people within Reba, which I suppose are still going to be there and still going to be influential. Um, that's, that's we're going to see. It's, it's, it's good news. It's great. But that doesn't mean we should let our guard down. Um, so Oki's bid was backed by a coalition of young architects, students, trade unions and the Future Architects Front. Uh, what does this say about the power of collective action in bringing about change rather than just like relying on individual personalities and brands? Well, so this could mean two things. It could mean, as you said, that you know, the, uh, the collective won and, and people organizing, grassroots organizing and, and people who typically do not have a voice suddenly coming together, get, got to choose against the will of the establishment, against the will of the status quo, someone to shake the system. There's also another possibility is that the system, the establishment allowed for this to happen as a PR campaign in order to maintain things the way they are, because by putting at the top someone who will no doubt want to change things, that doesn't mean that they will allow that to happen, but then they can hide behind that and, and benefit from 
from the the image of of having opened up to diversity but does that mean that those who actually have the power the 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 elites will relinquish that power i don't know i mean obviously we were on the topic of the riba so muiwa oki is going to be becoming the president of it it's a big job um and potentially there's a lot of change that he could bring about um but i'm interested to hear your take uh, on the institute uh what, how it could change, but also the Institute itself more generally. Um, do you think it's becoming more or less important for something that represents architects in this kind of age, especially when things like Twitter, Instagram, TikTok seem to be taking over as forums for ideas, concerns and campaigns? Well, I think that there tends to be an over-reliance on, on new platforms to create things. Platforms are only platforms, but then they need the people and the people are already there and they need to organize. So Platforms can be a tool to organize, but they're not going to organize themselves for us. Um, especially, we, we see a trend, unfortunately, where I think that um, every time a platform seems to become the platform for activism and organizing, the platform itself tries to silence that or to slow it or stop it because it's not in their economic interest to become the platform for organizing and activism. So part of the answer is let's not put too much hope in the platforms. And it sounds ironic because I am someone who's very active on the platforms and try my best to, to leverage that, to use that to my, or to the cause, uh, for, for the cause advantage. But I'm also acutely aware of it, its limitations. So that's why I'm, I'm saying that. So People being organized, we, we see the result. The, those people have managed to, to get someone elected uh, representing them. So that's a good thing. Um, now, is it going to change the role of RIBA? Um, that's a question that I'm asking, but I, I, I don't have the answer. Children living in social housing in a multi-million pound Thameside development in Southwark have been told playing games outdoors breaches tenancy agreements. This is a story that was reported by The Guardian. Parents who argue there is nowhere for their children to play received letters from the City of London Corporation informing them that their kids' games were a, quote, breach of tenancy agreements after a neighbour's noise nuisance app captured them playing in the corridors. One Tower Bridge, built by developer Barclay on land owned by Southwark Council, comprises 399 private flats offering five-star living and a separate block of social housing flats, which is now managed by the City of London. According to residents, the only communal space available to the social housing tenants is a rooftop garden reserved for quiet enjoyment only, leaving no allocated play space for children and families. The original proposal for the building, which was approved by then London Mayor Boris Johnson in 2010, refers to, quote, 235 square metres of designated play space on site, as well as a number of play opportunities in the remainder of the open space on site. One parent said, quote, the corridor is wide and carpeted. We make sure they play quietly, but they're not welcome anywhere else. They have tried the ground floor lobby and have been told to move on from there. Surely, in a development this size, there could have been a safe space for children to play. We know there are gardens we can't use on the private side, which was upsetting in lockdown. 
Joris, you've made several TikToks about housing estates in London and beyond. What kind of features and structures make a successful estate with a thriving community? And why is access to green space and space where children can play such an important part of a flourishing environment? If we look for architectural features, it's not necessarily where the answer is going to be. What makes an estate successful is not necessarily its features, but more the involvement of the residents and the way they are respected, the way that their needs are being met. So, of course, that means spatial needs, so having space for children, but but that also means fair rent, that also means amenities, shops, uh, communal spaces, where the residents are given the opportunity to own the space both financially, but also owning it in terms of, of feeling like they belong to the space and the space belongs to them. Um, so that can take many, many aspects. So I don't necessarily have a list of features or of boxes to tick. But yes, it, it relies on, on satisfying the residents and, and meeting their needs. And here with this example, we see who that's, that was really built for. It was built for people who are not expected to have children. And then as an afterthought, and because legally they have to, there's a provision for affordable housing. But we are constantly reminded that this was not, those are not the people that this was initially built for. And they are basically barely tolerated there. And this goes back to this idea that if people are poor, it's their fault. And when I use the poor here, that's intentional because I think all of us in this room would, would qualify as poor in this context because in order to not be poor in London, you have to be very rich. But that's, that's a distinction that I intentionally make, rich versus poor, to really make people realise, no, but you're very, very likely considered as poor by the, by the system, by developers as well, um, because the huge majority of the developments, especially in central London, are not for people like us. Therefore, we are seen as poor, and we should just take, the, take whatever is given to us. And, and the, the, the rules are not made for us. They, they're not made for to, to, to satisfy our needs, and including family needs. Terminology which I'm sure a lot of our listeners will be sympathetic to. Although, of course, if there are any rich listeners, you're welcome to donate via our website. Thank you very much. Um, so these segregated play spaces, they've been creeping uh, into London. They've been becoming much more commonplace over the past decade. Like uh, listeners may remember the controversy when Henley Homes blocked children living in social housing from using the playground in the Lillian Bayliss estate in Lambeth. Um, Joris, is this pattern of segregating communal areas something that's becoming increasingly specific to contemporary development in London? Is this like a very peculiarly symptom of, of London's development industry? Uh, or is this actually something that's potentially happening all over the world? So social segregation is baked into British society. Historically, that's what it's been built on. But then we've had, we'd have movements, we've had pushes to go in a different direction, um, giving more rights to workers, um, more equality, um, unionization, all of those. And then all of that was ground to a halt um, in the 80s, again, with, with the Thatcher era, and then continued by the successive governments, um, both Labour and, and, and Tories. So we have a resurgence of that because there is such a disparity now in, in who gets to build, who gets to choose 
um, because now it's all for a specific part of the society, which is rich people, um, most of the buildings here, and that is being exported all around the world. Not intentionally, but simply because we have a narrower and narrower portion of the population who gets to make the decisions and who gets to build for that same portion of the population. As a result, there's a big part of, of, of the population who's completely excluded from the space, and when they are, again, tolerated in that space, it's not in their own terms. It's in the terms of the people who made the decisions. So we have a good example of that in London, um, and we see that there's a huge amount of new buildings that are not catering to people who actually need to be in London because they work in London. Um, segregation is a natural result of, of this, this, the system of our society that it puts increasingly more wealth and power into a smaller portion of the population. So on this topic, and I think it's a building you've covered as well in your TikToks, uh, we've been following the twists and turns of the Cressium Gardens legal battle here on Lundown. Uh, once again, it's in the news. Um, residents of the 1960s housing estate next to Brockwell Park have been granted permission for a fourth judicial review over Lambeth Council's plans to demolish part of the estate. Um, Joris, why is it that social housing like this, these homes, they're always seemingly under threat? Yeah, always seemingly under threat first, uh, more so than like a terrace of privately owned homes, for example. Um, and why is it social housing residents are always having to fight uh, for their rights to self ha- safe housing, uh, something that you know so many other people take for granted? Well, so I, I live really close to Crescent Gardens, so I've, I've been going there for a very long time, and it, it's it's very interesting because it's a perfect example of community that works. People are happy there. They want to stay there. And yet, that's the one that's being earmarked for demolition. And yes, there's a real need for more housing and just giving some grace to Lambeth Council, but that's not going to last. But most, well, all councils, they're not really able to build as much as as they would need to and that's because of of right to buy not just right to buy in itself but the fact that councils were not able to renew the stock of of housing that would go from public to privately owned Uh, so that's the core of the problem now going back to blaming lambeth council is that what they're doing with that situation that they didn't choose is still the worst of, of of the possibilities because well first of all I think that they're working with with private uh, entities to to manage that stock and to they, they've devolved that responsibility to build new houses to to a private uh, entity, um, and and so we have profit that is getting into the mix now. So that means that there's an incentive to not build for the people who need it the most, but build for people with money, and that's what we're seeing across Lambeth. Transport Secretary Grant Shapps has vowed to write death by dangerous cycling into law, while campaigners stress that drivers are still by far the biggest threat. This was reported by iNews. According to Mr Shapps, a quote, selfish minority of cyclists appear to believe that they are somehow immune to red lights. The Transport Minister seems determined to bring forward a law targeted at cyclists who kill pedestrians. However, campaigners argue that deaths caused by cyclists are a tiny fraction of those caused by dangerous drivers. Shap's proposed measure, which is set to be included in the transport bill this autumn, would create a specific offence for dangerous cyclists and close a loophole where cyclists can only be jailed for two years. 
This comes as The Guardian reports that cycling growth in the UK has started to stagnate and now risks being left behind by Europe as cycle sales drop by a quarter on pre-pandemic levels. While cycling has significantly risen since the pandemic, up by 33% according to the Department of Transport, sales of new bikes and electric bikes are now plateauing. Industry insiders argue that more needs to be done to boost cycling uptake through investment in new infrastructure, safe cycle parking and subsidies. So, Joris, what do you make of this proposed law? Is it the right way to ensure safety on our streets or is it a distraction away from the real issue of dangerous driving? This is a perfect representation of the conservative mentality, which is um, completely ignoring the power dynamics at play here and, and putting the blame or at least the attention on a group that is not the powerful in this equation. Um, We have more than 70 years of of transport and also built environment policy that was built around the car, which is something that we need to undo. And instead of working on that, not only through legislation, um, but also through architecture, landscaping, planning, um, that, that... overpower of the car needs to be undone. But instead of addressing that, we are yeah, putting the attention and the blame on cyclists. So yes, there, there was a loophole here. Am I saying that we shouldn't fix it and look into the law and make sure that cyclists are properly punished if, if, if that results in, in a very bad situation and death? Yeah, no, absolutely not. We need to do that. But the fact that this is what gets the attention of of the media and even the fact that we're talking about it, we're participating in this uh, narrative that that the cyclist is the enemy. And and instead of really looking into who is being favored here, who is the actual danger? So let's let's keep, put things into perspective and, and remember the power dynamic at play here. Who is the most in danger and who's, who's the most at risk of causing that danger? How do we, so obviously cyclists isn't like a big money industry like fossil fuels or car manufacturer, how do we get to that, uh, that, that stage where we have a transport policy which isn't divisive, that brings everybody together, uh, gets us healthy, saves the planet at the same time? Well, you do the, exactly the opposite of what's happening in this country. Um, I, I grew up in, in France, in Strasbourg, which is in France, quite notorious for having completely embraced uh, the pedestrianization of the entire city center, which at the time it was done in late 80s was a complete 180 compared to this ideology of, of the car. So, and, and also I've traveled across Europe and, and we see that in most of Europe, the, the idea is how can we make the space safe for cyclists and pedestrians and how can we encourage them to share that space. And one of the things that really struck me the most when I got to, to the UK was um, parks. You were not allowed to cycle in parks and it makes absolutely no sense to me. So, so instead of, of trying to create a mentality through regulation and through legislation that would encourage people to share that space in a safe way, we, again, compartment and and segregate those spaces by, yeah, limiting the access of cyclists to certain parts of, 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 of parks. And so, of course, cyclists have to be careful, but it's it's something that we can easily adapt to. We can educate ourselves. If from a very young age, we, as a cyclist, we are 
taught to share that space, to be mindful of, of pedestrians, then that creates a culture where it's normal. And look at, look at other European countries. The, they perfectly co coexist in the public space. So I think that this is exactly the wrong direction that we're taking by targeting cyclists and making them the cause of the problem. We're now on to the culture section. Um, so uh, this week, uh, we're going to mark an important milestone in Open City's uh, social media output. Uh, we've now reached a quarter of a million likes on TikTok. Congratulations. Um, we kickstarted our channel at the start of this year. It's been going from success to success. Um, it, it, it's pretty cool. We've got some interesting videos on it. Uh, got the, the Golden Lane Estate, the Trellick Tower. Uh, we've got a pub, the George Tavern. Uh, we've got the Carlton Tavern, the one that was rebuilt from scratch after being knocked down by a developer. Uh, Coventry Cathedral, the design district, which is where our office is. You can discover all these amazing places on the TikTok channel. Um, sometimes in a way that you couldn't really do on other mediums. Like it's, it's a medium that kind of, it likes storytelling and it likes sort of micro tours. Uh, there's a lot of people on TikTok doing these uh, tours of buildings and tours of places. Um, and it seems like there's a kind of new trend for architecture and built environment discourse to venture into this new social media sphere. Um, and obviously this platform that Joris, you've been very successful on, um, what is it about the platform that makes it so effective at getting messages out to, the, to a wider audience that might not otherwise know about this kind of content? I think that in terms of, of media landscape, what we've had for a very long time were experts showing, showing places, or if, even if not experts in, in, in the building, but people in a position of either celebrities or people who are expected to know. And I think that the... the, the power of social media is that you have everyday people sharing their discovery um, so they might be experts but they're not the typical people who would have had access to um, traditional media uh, so there's this um, proximity that people feel um, so and I think that there's a sense of empowerment people feel empowered to choose who they want to show them around as opposed to you know oh this person is from the telly and this person is doing this travel show, and the, now they get to, oh, I like this, this bloke. I've, yeah, I, I somehow relate to him, so oh, I'm, I'm, I'll, I'll be very interested in hearing his take on that place or that place. So I think that's the difference. Um, there's a greater proximity, uh, and people appreciate that. One of the things that I think is quite remarkable about TikTok is, say if you, if you put some content out on, on a website or you put some content on Twitter or something like that, you get certain comments and sometimes the comments, they can be quite reserved or they can be quite uh, well-informed or whatever. But then you, you put something on TikTok, like it could be quite niche, like a video about a co-housing development from the 60s in Hatfield. And suddenly you'll find that there's like an enormous avalanche of like really interesting comments and like really interesting discourse that's coming out of it. S surprising sometimes compared to other mediums. Do you think that TikTok, things like uh, also Substack, Patreon, these, these new things that have come along, do they have, will they reshape the landscape of built environment dialogue? I'm not sure about that because I, I think that those platforms, they also give, they give oversized power to trolls and to people with hateful intentions. And because there's this idea of equality, so everyone's voice is equal, the problem is that 
people who have no understanding and no knowledge, their voice has the same weight as people who actually know what they're talking about. And, and because we are in society and nobody is um, impervious from, from um, implicit biases of our society, there would be people who are invested in repeating and even amplifying the implicit biases of our society onto social media. And they will make a point in drowning out people who are trying to show that, oh, it's not actually as things appear. And this is something that I experience a lot. When I don't make a video to say, to confirm a, a stereotype. If, if I'm going to be talking about something, it's precisely to show an, an aspect that I feel has not been um, talked about. Or, or, yeah, not really developed. But the, the huge amount of, of comments that I will get of people simply repeating what, the, what, what they think they know about the place, even though I'm clearly showing and demonstrating that it is not at his, appear, at his appears, but they will really feel invested into maintaining their, their, their stereotype or their preconceived ideas of the place. And I find that quite fascinating. So next up in culture, it's a big announcement from the Open House Festival, which has revealed its 30th anniversary plans. Um, This year, there's a new curatorial strategy, which is centred on championing nine remarkable London neighbourhoods. These are Allgate, East Ham, Greenwich Peninsula, South Tottenham, Somerstown, Battersea, Walworth, Shepherd's Bush and Cambridge Heath. Um, during the festival, visitors to each neighbourhood will be able to explore a wide range of different building types and architectural styles with multiple community events, tours and things to do in each location. Uh, obviously, that's the Open House Festival running from the 8th to 21st of September. Um, what about that idea of focusing on like remarkable London neighbourhoods? Because I, I think sometimes there's this idea that London is like certain places, the city of London, Westminster. Um, you don't really you know, hear about Shepherd's Bush being like, yeah, that's the place you've got to go, or like Woolworth. Is it about time that people start profiling the different, the different poles of London, which are actually like the real places where if you live and work in London, you're going to spend way more time in these places than you do in Leicester Square, for example. Absolutely. So there's the obvious places, the touristy places or the places of shopping, central London, etc. Um, from that list, my impression is that there's, there's an actual, in, like, you went out of your way to avoid those places and try to shine a light on on other areas of London. I would say there's a third level is actually focusing on the underloved parts of London, the places where even Londoners would hesitate to go to. Um, So maybe some of them... Tell uh, me, have you got a favourite underloved part? Well, I would would say Cressingham Gardens uh, that we've mentioned. There's also... um, What's it called? It's something court. Crescent Gardens is in the festival. Okay, okay, well, in that case... You get to go in the community hub. It's really nice. Oh, that's great. Okay, that's good news then. Um, There's one, something court that is... um, Is this um, Dorchester Court? Yes, absolutely, yeah. Dorchester Court. Um, I would really encourage people to, if they're ever in the Brixton area, more specifically Hernhill, Dorchester Court, because it's a beautiful building that the landlord is trying to redevelop into luxury penthouses. Um, so in the meantime, obviously their goal is to get rid of, of the previous tenants. And for that, they're just letting it 
rot and, and fall apart. Um, so that creates, yeah, current residents are living in, in terrible conditions. Um, but that's unfortunately um, something that is happening all across London. Joris, it's been an immense pleasure to feature you on Lundown. Um, um, I hope you can join us again in the future. Looking forward to seeing more of your videos and hearing more about your work. Um, where should our listeners go to stay up to speed on what you're doing? Is there some social media handles you'd like to share? So I am Joris underscore explained on TikTok. That's my main, um, my main output. Um, I sometimes post some of the best of on Instagram where I'm joris.lechen. Um, but yeah, mostly TikTok. That's where I'm the most active. Cheers. Well, thanks for being on the show. Thank you. Thanks, man. You've been listening to The Lundown, a show from Open City rounding up the big stories in architecture and the built environment each week in London. If you've enjoyed the show and want to know more about any of the stories we've discussed, we recommend subscribing to The Architect's Journal, which has covered all these issues and many more too. You can find the show on Twitter or Instagram at at OpenCityLondon or by using the hashtag Lundown, L-N-D-D-W-N. Open City receives no public funding, so if you want to support our work, please go to open-city.org.uk slash support and sign up as an Open City friend. Open City is dedicated to making London a more open, accessible and equitable city. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.